welcome to So To Speak. I'm your host, Vishnu Hetmark. I created this podcast because I wanted to have conversations with people whose mark on the world I really admire and who really inspire me, who I can listen to and walk away feeling that they have made me a kinder, more generous person. We'll talk about their backgrounds and upbringings, their setbacks and hardships, passions and creative journeys, and ultimately, the moments that have really made an impact on who they are now and their hopes and dreams for the future. I hope you enjoy the next conversation of So To Speak. Taraja Morel is a native New Yorker. She has spent much of her life in and around the food and wine industry. From watching as her family opened two wine-focused hubs, years of waitressing while paving her way as an actress, working as a publicist at a firm for restaurants and chefs, and helping special hospitality brands and restaurants to grow. On this week's episode, we discuss how a stint at the French Culinary Institute inspired her to start The Lovage, a blog about her lifelong love affair with food, which led to her career as a food writer. How a journey to shift her own perspective of herself and the life she was leading took her to Uruguay, where she would write a piece that would become the launch pad to her writing for such publications as WSJ Magazine, T Magazine, Food and Wine, and many others. We also discuss the strength and generosity that comes with female friendships, and how at the end of the day, we have to independently weather the moments of hardship and wait to get to the other side. It's just a matter of time. Okay, um, would you like to just start off with um, sharing with us your upbringing? And I know you're from New York and your parents are in the food industry or have been, but why don't you give us a little taste of what you experienced as a child? growing up? Sure. Um, So I did grow up in New York City. I'm an only child. I grew up in this extremely uh, special, asymmetrical apartment uh, that really, um, it was my dad's bachelor pad, briefly. Um, My mother quickly swooped in and, uh, and it They were together for six or seven years before they had me, and um, it's a one-bedroom, and they sort of kept me in a drawer um, (laughs) until I outgrew the drawer, and then my mother said, you know, we have to leave. This is crazy. There's no place for a child, and my dad said, well, we're not leaving, so you figure it out, and they kind of made me this little rabbit hutch bedroom. Um, which I grew up in until I was 15 and, you know, was like tired of living in such close quarters with them and uh, moved out and went to boarding school. Um, but all of this is really only relevant because I now live in that apartment, um, on my own, which is so funny because it's such a different experience. Um, as an adult on my own, obviously I see it in a very different way than I saw it as a, as a child. And particularly, yeah, as a teenager, right. which was the last time I lived here. So and you're probably now think, going, gosh, this is amazing. Thank indeed. God. Yeah, indeed. And yeah, I mean, there's so much more sort of absurdity to the story, which was, which, you know, involves us sort of not owning it and have being these crazy New Yorkers who rent the same apartment for, you know, we're pushing like 50 years now. Well, that would be very New York of you, wouldn't it? 
I, I suppose. I suppose it would be the tradition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, a different version of New York. What did your parents do? Um, my father uh, was in the wine business. Um, my grandparents started a um, wine shop, very humble, um, approachable wine shop in the 1940s in New York. And my dad and eventually his sister took it over um, when they were, you know, once they could sort of come of age. And um, my dad and eventually his sister really elevated it to um, a very well-respected uh, wine shop where I would say they're in, it's called Morelling Company. Um, and I would say between Morelling Company and Sherry Lehman were two, the two places that, you know, if you really loved wine or you wanted to buy a great bottle of wine, that's where you went. And um, because my dad was, was and is such an aficionado, because falling in love with wine, you know, really um, means falling in love with kind of storytelling in, in a, in a bottle and, and an incredibly, um, luxurious experience of living even, you know, in the everyday. Um, he expected my mom to cook meals that could go with these extraordinary wines that he was serving at their, you know, dinner parties. And she didn't know how to cook when they got married. Um, and so she really taught herself to cook by reading Julia Child and, um, and now is a phenomenal home cook. Um, so, you know, their lives really revolved around the table and, um, and, you know, ironically now mine really does too. I mean, I suppose it always did. Yeah. So did you, um, did you kind of get your first taste of kind of the romantic side of writing from your father's business or influenced uh, by that? Not really. No, I was just always, I actually probably got that from my mom. She, you know loves to read, um, and read to me in the womb and, um, you know, read me tons of stories immediately and the, the, the stories of her youth and, you know, Anne of Green Gables and these beautiful dreamy, uh, books and really cultivated in me a love of words and, and reading from before I even went to school. And then, you know, of course, got to read some great things in school that furthered that love. And, um, but so I think actually it probably comes more from her. Yeah. Uh, but well, you, you've actually said that you were inspired by your mother for her grace and patience and generosity, which I, yeah. I think reading your work, those qualities shine through even in how you now describe your experiences. Um, so I think that, definitely something you've inherited from your mother or your mother's influence I, I should say oh well thank you I mean she is a paragon of grace and warmth and generosity and sweetness so uh, if I have even a modicum of her traits I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm lucky very lucky did you She's grow lucky. up more close to your mother or your Equally, Absolutely. yeah. No, no, my mom was. I mean, you know, it was, it was very much. Uh, she was, she was nearby. The apartment is 
fantastic. It's not huge. It's, it's I sort of say it's like everything's within hollering distance and yeah. you know, um, she was always nearby and she cooked me, you know, every meal of my youth. There wasn't a sort of culture of like ordering in or, you know, um, meals from a can in, in the house. Once she decided she was going to learn how to cook, it became, you know, I'm going to cook all the time. And, um, and my dad, you know, unfortunately, uh, being the, head of a family owned relatively small business um he worked all the time and he um you know he's a he's a real genius when it comes to wine and has an extraordinary palate and an amazing um sense memory for for what he's drank and when it's really uncanny but he's when you're when you're running a company um you're really focused on keeping the lights on and making payroll and making sure your staff is and um and i think I think that's part of why I didn't go into that business is I saw him kind of suffering um, what that, the level of responsibility and intenseness that, that is essential like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you ever feel pressured at any point to do that? Not at all. He was very clear that he would never push me to do that. That's really lovely. Yeah. I have um, three cousins who I work quite a bit older than I am and I think they've all worked in the family business at some point um or another mm-hmm. but yeah it just I knew it wasn't for me and I don't have my father's encyclopedic um knowledge about wine I have in very strong instincts and you know some knowledge and a, a, a you know I think a great palate but um I don't have that uh sort of um compass uh an ability to taste something and tell you you know such specifics about it um that he can yeah well i'm sure that has taken him his lifetime to do um so you went to boarding school at 15 did you have a good experience with that i did um i was really glad for a change i'd gone to the same um all-girls school in new york for 10 years before that and i was really ready for some fresh energy and i did have a great um time at boarding school it, you know I was a little bit different I was a city kid most of the other kids were from um New England and were very uh you know athletic and um sort of had great like hand-eye coordination which I seem to not <laughs> and you know there were a lot of like mishaps I didn't know that the people who played certain sports had cleats on their shoes, oh, so you just leave out and slide all over the place and get sort of, like, laughed off the field. But, you know, one survives these things. Um, one does. Well, you're having your own Anne of Green Gables experience, I suppose. Yes. Oh, my gosh. What a, wow, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, the romantic look on life. Um, so you finished school, and then did you go to university? I did. Um, I went, I actually ironically came back to New York and went to Barnard, um, which is sort of the originally was the women's college within Columbia university. Um, and I suppose on some level still is that, um, but you know, when it was started, women were not admitted to Columbia. So that was a bizarre experience because, um, you know, I was like in school with all these people who are in New York for the first time and we're like, let's go down to the West End and drink some beer. And I was like, I'm going to Mumbai. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it was very precocious and, and rebellious at that time and sort of 
doing my own. Then finished, what did you study at Barnard? I studied art history. Yeah, started studying art history in high school. I was very lucky that there was an amazing art history program at my uh, boarding school. And really learned history through the art um, that was produced um, because I never had really warmed to history in the in the usual sense of that. Um, and then didn't really want to work in the art world, just loved learning about art history and didn't know what to do with myself and took an acting class. Um, I think it was the summer before my senior year and really took to it and, and started to be an actor and then really was an actor for all of my twenties. Um, and you know, there were some good, good moments and good auditions and good jobs. And there were lots of bad moments and it was deeply frustrating to feel so, um, out of control of my own destiny, destiny and sort of at the whim of, of many factors that had nothing to do with my talent or my capabilities or anything else. Um, it's interesting because much like acting, you then fell into the restaurant world, if I recall correctly. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> when you're a struggling actor you very often work in the restaurant world right. um, yeah so which is uh, in itself an entire show and act and it is it, it was very um you know of course in retrospect I'm, I'm so glad that I did that because it wound up ironically being such a part of my my professional and you know personal life now but um there was a, a sense of uh familiarity and knowledge because my parents had been, you know, in the wine business and, and, you know, food had been such an important part of our lives. And we actually had had a couple of restaurants over the years. So yeah, it felt very, um, appealing, but then at the same time, I really, you know, I, I got to a point of really loathing waiting tables, especially, you know, it was, it was just such a grind and such a disparaging experience. Let me tell you. So you, did you move to Los Angeles for acting? I did. And how long were you there for? I was there for three years. Yes. Well, actually, um, I was really unhappy. I was like, I I really didn't like it there. I I really wasn't happy as an actor, but I was stubborn and I kept on keeping on and showing up and auditioning and like hacking away at it. Um, And then uh, the straw that what wasn't the straw the the um the thing that you know kept me from continuing to be so stubborn was that I um I lost a very dear friend uh, in a terrible accident um actually yeah. here in, in New York and it just it just um ripped away any ability to pretend um yeah. that I pay anymore and um so I came back to New York and was really at sea I knew I didn't want to act anymore I didn't want to audition I didn't want to keep up that sort of artifice but I needed obviously to have a job and um so I actually wound up working to help um the my deceased friend Jasper's family's company keep going um for a year and that was it was very confusing it was very sad it was a very sad environment that we were trying to kind of, um, you know, just keep going for his family and, uh, 
and then at the same time there was a level of comfort to it because um he was around us all the time yeah. in the environment and you know it was we were both grieving and tr- healing and um well and just ha- being around people who were probably going through what you were going through was probably very in that same regard it was probably really nurturing or it was both it was something to lean on it, it was it was nurturing and it was but it was also um that much sharper because everyone that I loved was also suffering and so there was it was very hard to find a sort of um safe place you know away from that and you know when you when you lose somebody that you love so much you you kind of don't want to go to the safe place because it feels like you're almost abandoning the person and at the same time you know you have to you have to eventually um from that how did you land into well I I left that, that job after about a year and a half and I was really lost I just didn't know what to do with myself and still probably kind of grieving in, in many ways and um and then I something um something just kind of told me I should turn back toward food and I mm-hmm. I didn't know in what capacity and um, as an actor, I'd always felt a tremendous amount of insecurity about having not gone to school, you know, to drama school. Um, yeah. And I always was in class, but it just didn't feel, I didn't feel I had this foundation and this sort of confidence um, and compass that my friends who'd gone to school for it had. So once I decided or realized that I wanted to turn back toward food, I said, okay, I'm going to do this by the book. I want to go to cooking school. I want to understand the, you know, the basics and the foundations. And so I, that's what I did. I enrolled in like a four month class at the French Culinary Institute, which I could have taken on for the next, you know, year or year and a half and had gotten a degree in. Um, but what wound up happening is that it felt so good and so right. And so inspiring to learn like that. Uh, but I quickly realized I didn't want to be a professional chef. Um, right. I want to, write about food and so I I started this like incredibly heartfelt somewhat rinky dinky food blog called The Lovage yeah I think when you and I met you were I think you were just starting that and I thought that right I mean I started that in like 2011 yeah Um, yeah so and then you know kind of through a little bit of luck and um I got a couple writing jobs quickly and but still had a feeling that I couldn't really make a living doing it um, probably because I'd never made a living as an actor it just felt like oh no you you can't make a living doing the thing that you love it doesn't work that way yeah. um yeah <laughs> and oh, no so you know, kept working in restaurants, which was a great thing. I took, you know, I did an internship in um, a great kitchen and I was, I was still waiting tables, but then I was managing and, you know, trying to figure it out. And then wound up basically um, being offered out of the blue, a job doing public relations for um, the best firm for restaurants and chefs um, in New York and perhaps maybe the country even. And so I did that for a year, which was so not the right job for me. And yet it's, it's been such an asset, um, in so many ways that I had that experience. I learned so much from it about how the media world works and how to pitch a story right. and, 
made some wonderful friends and, you know, had an, a very, um, you know, a great, a great boss who probably was very frustrated by me and my stubbornness and, um, you know, idiocy about certain things. And, well, it's and, the naivete of it all, right? You're yeah, finding yeah. your feet. Total. What, so, but what do you feel was like the moment that you really changed things for you then at like a turning point of either personally or professionally? It was sort of both. Um, in the interim in the backdrop of the story is, um, you know, a long ish relationship, four years of being deeply, deeply in love with someone. Um, and then that not working out and then, um, you know, being quite heartbroken and then like falling deeply in love with someone else and that not working out and that happening sort of, um, in tandem with me having this job that was at once, you know, I was so close to, to being on the right track. Um, but I wasn't quite on it. And I sort of, when that relationship, um, imploded, I really just, you know, lost the plot and realized that I had to change so many things about my life and myself and my perspective because I actually thought, oh, well, he doesn't love me because I don't love what I'm doing and I can't right. respect myself because I don't love what I'm doing and I'm not using these things that, you know, I should be using from myself and, and to be an authentic person. And, you know, I came up with this whole narrative about, like, well, that's why he doesn't love me is because oh, I'm not dear. enough this and you know so then I decided okay well I'm going to change all these things about myself not just for him but for me I can't do this and so I went on this like solo adventure um in South America and you went to Uruguay yeah and I had this absolutely incredible experience which was you know it was complicated I was very um I was very much on my own which was a positive thing but it was, it was not without its complications, but I had given myself a lot of self-assignments about how things I needed to change about my perspective. And, and it was really just do or die and, and it worked and I really changed. And I got from that experience, um, where, you know, I was like making ceviche on the beach, um, having this like bizarre, wild, like lonely adventure. Um, I, wound up meeting somebody about whom I wrote, um, my first like more significant, uh, article for the wall street journal magazine. And, um, and that really changed things for me because it's, you know, very, very well, well-respected right. And so if people say, Oh, you wait, you just wrote yeah. a story. This. Well, why you could pitch to me. It was a platform that was really kind of helped you dive off into it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm still working my tail off. It's certainly not a fait accompli, but um, but you know, it was it was it was a good, a very good, positive step. How much of the things that you thought you had to change? Yeah, I mean, I think that these are those were all my own narratives. You know, I think that those narratives are things that I told myself. You know, that you know, well, why would somebody? Um, want to be with me if I'm not like authentically in the world making things something that I feel proud of you know and um but really what that is is me saying you know I don't I don't want to be with myself I don't I don't think that I'm enough of these things and um yeah I mean I'm very hard on myself I always have been um and uh you know sometimes that serves me and makes me do better work and sometimes it just you know 
freezes me up. I mean, I think it's... Looking back at that kind of that first piece that you did that was the, the kind of launching pad for the next, you know, tide of good fortune mm -hmm. or hard work, whatever you want to call it, what... Um, what are the lessons you carry with you now today and how you approach your work now? Um, well, there's so many. If you look at that experience um, and look for, for lessons and guides in it, there are many. And I think I've realized that um, you know, having come a bit later to uh, the sort of quote-unquote game of, of um, media and, and writing and journalism on some level, um, you know, I, I have to be extremely scrappy. I don't have, um, I don't have any laurels to rest on. It's very clear. Um, you know, I don't have the time to spend my twenties, um, which are long gone, you know, toiling away at, at an online publication and, you know, I don't have any of that. So it's not even an option. Um, so the way I've kind of constructed my life now is I've accepted that, you know, at least at this moment, um, I'm not going to make probably enough money to, to live the adult life that I want to live and have the freedoms that I want to free have as a writer. Right. Um, so I do other things as well. And I, I keep the writing part of my life extremely sacred. And what I mean by that is that I really just do the stories I want to do. Yeah. I'm deeply selective because, um, that keeps me still really, really enjoying it and just being hyper uh, um, conscious of, you know, trying to do the best work I can do when I'm getting to do it. It's a privilege. It's the cherry on top, you know? Right. It's like, yeah. Well, that's your, your style of writing, is it feels uh, like you're writing from a place very close. It's like your heart on a, on a table. And um, you have this kind of like romantic, nostalgia that always seeps through um have you always ha has it taken you a while to get confident in your style um no I mean it's kind of just how it's just a non I mean it's just like a real expression of, of my view of things and maybe you know maybe to a fault maybe too romantic I mean I've certainly been accused of being too romantic I don't not necessarily in my writing in my life mm. um but um you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think it's hard to make the time sometimes to write these really heartfelt pieces. I used to have more time to do it, and now I might hide a little bit more behind a different kind of, you know, more journalistic things. Um, and, you know, because going through the uh, the personal experiences and putting them together it's a different it takes something out of you in a different way but I have to say I was just going over some stuff to send some sample pieces to something about you know potential job opportunity and I was like you know what I like my I like my little heartfelt you like should <laughs> you definitely should it's something that I think especially in the climate that we're in now I think we need that we need those things that are going to make us feel good inside and that are going to take you away from the reality of the moment if it's hard and harsh and give you something that's truly heartfelt that you know if someone's put their time and effort to give them a perspective that's coming from a place of love I don't think there's 
anything wrong with that. And I and I value it. So I can't be the only one. Thank you. I think also what's happened in it and it I don't necessarily um know that I would have seen this coming, but but I've become really um you know, through my love of food, it's brought me to a place of being a much more um obsessive uh, critique of, of sort of our practices and our, our consumption and how we take care of the planet. And um, that's been an interesting journey in the last few years, but it's something, you know, it's like, it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, going back to your love of food, the New Yorker writer, A.J. Liebling, who said the primary re- requisite for writing well about food is a good appetite. Mm-hmm. What is what is one of the most memorable meals you've had? Gosh. Um, I mean, you know, there's, it's such a cliche, I suppose, but, you know, there's the thing I crave probably the most in, in, in life is like my mom's roast chicken. Some, some meals from that were really staples of my childhood that are still, if I catch them at the right moment, when I visit my family, I can still swoop in on like cookie Saint-Jacques is one of my all-time favorites. Um, and, uh, but, you know, in terms of eating out, um, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to not think about a meal I had two days ago with someone who's become one of my best friends and it was her birthday and late at night she came from her job in a restaurant. I came from the thing I was helping out with in a restaurant and we had this beautiful, you know, happy dinner and ate amazing food at this restaurant called Frenchette, which mm-hmm. opened a few months ago here in New York and has become our, um, our favorite place to gather. Yeah. Um, but there's so many, you know, I remember certain meals. Um, you know, I remember the first meal I ever had with somebody that I grew to love very much. And, um, a meal, you know, like the last time I went to, to, to Europe, I was flying through Paris and I took the red eye and I got in it into the city itself at about 2 p.m. And I just went straight to one of my favorite little restaurants in Paris and I had lunch by myself and, you know, had a glass of wine and some delicious foie gras on a salad. And and then went for a walk. I let the guys at the restaurant know me and so I left my bags with them and went for a walk in the Jardin Luxembourg and um, then, you know, got tired and lay down on a bench and took a nap. <laughs> little gypsy. That sounds <laughs> beautiful it was so good I was like I'm really just a gypsy I'm I feel very much I love my life right now I mean there's certainly some parts of it that are are really frustrating to me but I feel such deep like I I don't take for granted that I like what I do professionally and that it makes me feel good because for so long that was just a total void where I was just like what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Who am I? What's wrong with me? Why can't I find something that feels right? Why can't I, you know? So, what do you think was your major, the block that you had to just step over yeah. or let go of? Fear. Hmm. Definitely. Always fear. Fear of, um, I think the most, you know, 
yeah, the fear of, um, not sticking your neck out, not trying the fear of failure, the fear of judgment, all that stuff. It's just, you know, completely will tie you up into knots. Um, well, yeah, well, I kind of did this, that crazy thing with Uruguay where I just put myself in a situation that made no sense and, like, was totally on my own, didn't speak the language, had one dear friend there who, you know, was really nesting by the time I got there. She was in love and pregnant and, um, and yeah, and I just, I... I just went on the solo adventure and I, I really also, the other thing that became very clear to me from that experience was how important nature is. And, and that realization that I needed nature to heal and I needed to set up my life so that, you know, in this, in this, um, pocket of my life where I had all these self assignments that I needed to be very much in touch with nature. And I, I went to one of the most beautiful places you know, I've ever been to, which is Uruguay and has like these hills, like out West Montana vibes down to the Atlantic ocean. And the flora is just so mind blowing. You have seals and sea lions and, you know, the occasional penguin that's gotten off track and then flamingos and uh, horses and, you know, uh, eucalyptus trees and fern tree uh, and uh, fir trees. And then also, Oh, it's, it's like you really feel like you're at the end of the earth and in, in this little pocket that I was in, and it, and and it the you know it healed me. And I'm I I'm, I have a very strong connection to to water and the ocean and sort of swimming by myself in these huge cold Atlantic waves every day really just helped and helped and very blessed to have had that experience um, and lucky that you had a friend that you could just rely on to allow you to have that experience. I mean, that's, it's, it is extremely lucky. Somebody I went to boarding school with someone very soulful who has never, you know, she's not a part of, um, my everyday, but she's just, she's just a great friend. And she's just, what, what elements of, of friendship are you most, um, do you need most now in your life? You know, what are, what do you look for? Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, for a long time I was so uh, reliant on my oldest friends. And I think being, you know, maybe a bit behind in terms of uh, the gateposts that we measure our lives by in terms of the fact that I'm not married and I don't have children, I think, has been a complicated um, thing, you know, in terms of those friendships because, um you know, they, my three oldest friends all, um, have, you know, gotten married and two of them have had children. And, and I think it's different. I've made new friends and I've made some friends in the last few years who have become some of the most important people in my life. And, um, our relationships are so loving and generous and there's none of the baggage or judgment or um, games or traps that I have had with, you know, some of the very old sister friends, you know, yeah. the people I grew up with. Um, are, are the women that, that are in your life now that kind of fill that space for you and that support system? Are they in the same industry as you, or do you find uh, 
you you have a, an eclectic group because of the nature of being in New York and just what a madhouse yeah. it is. It, there's there's interesting overlap. There definitely is interesting overlap, but not that's not a necessity um, at all in terms of of the people I've grown really close to in the, in the last few years. Um, but you know, I mean, I, my oldest friends are still very much a part of my life and very important to me. But um, but. Yeah, I mean, female friendship is is such an amazing, generous, complicated thing. It's just so. I don't know if you read uh, the Neapolitan novels, but no, I, I'm in the middle of the first one, but I'm I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's just such an interesting um, portraiture of female friendship and and a certain kind of female friendship, but um. I don't know, even yesterday I had this experience with a woman where there was a little bit of awkwardness, but sort of both dated, she was dating someone I used to date, I wasn't sure if she knew, I didn't think it was my place to tell her, and you know, we weren't sure, like we're kind of dancing around each other and not, you know, who says hi first, and as soon as we broke the seal, it was just all love and generosity and, and sort of... Uh, warmth, and it just made me think, God, women are so amazing, you know? Women Definitely. are so generous and so unexpected and so strong. So strong. Do you feel like your relationships with women, that it's been easier for you to navigate as you get older, or or have you always actually been able to have really good female friendships? I think I've always had, I've been very lucky to have amazing female friendships. I think, um, by and large relationships have gotten better, but I, you know, I think it's also, sometimes it's hard to look back and, and watch the self-selecting one does. Mm-hmm. And may not be totally conscious in the moment, but you just don't prioritize certain friends and people in the same way as you do others. And, and, you know, that affects the friendship and you wind up not staying, you know, as close with somebody that you were really close with when you were 20 and, and, you know, you, now you see what's up in their life from Instagram and, and, you know, you're happy for them, but you're not, you're not feeling there every day. And I think that can feel sad and awkward, but it can also just, I think that's life. I mean, I used to be this acting teacher and she would always say meeting someone should be as simple as a handshake and letting someone go should be as simple as a handshake and beautiful thing to say yeah and you know I think there's some truth to that and I think the ones that are super sticky and complicated are are um you know the I still don't know what to do with some of those (laughs) (laughs) okay there's plenty of time to figure that out (laughs) who inspires you to stay curious now who are those people who kind of push you along um, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I feel like so much of my current life is self-generated and like, I feel, I feel very, um, perhaps to a fault, you know, reliant on myself, but I think that I have, you know, absolute support from my emotional support from my fam- my parents and my friends are deeply encouraging. But I, I, I think that's another thing, like getting older, you realize 
you know, you really just have to navigate this stuff yourself and it has some of it has to run its course and it's not fun at all. Um, you know, professional or personal letdown. Um, and your friends, you can lean on them, but it's, I, 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 I realize more and more that I just have to allow myself to, to kind of go through things and try wait for the moment. I'm going to come out the other side. Yeah. Sometimes like you're not going to, but then I just, in the last three months I've had sort of like, or not even three months, the last two months I've had sort of every aspect of my professional life had some sort of like blow up trauma, kind of, you know, unexpected disaster. And by the third one, I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I got this. You're not going to trust me. Yeah. You're going to try to take me down. Good luck. (laughs) But, um, but, but the first one really took it out of me and I lost, you know, all my kind of confidence for a while and didn't know where I was going. And, and, and then, you know, it just takes time. It's like anything. It just, it just takes, you got to go through it. And then you well, realize, it's, cool. it's like you were saying before you had to get, you had to get over your fear. And I guess now you're just learning to really trust yourself. I mean, yes, theoretically, but still like, when when it happens it's not fun or pretty no it doesn't feel like that at all it feels totally real I I was gonna I thought I was gonna work on this book project starting in August and uh, I've been planning for it for like a year and it it, you know then for a variety of reasons realized I was not going to work on it and the I was so sad I was so bummed I was like well no I have to do that to do the next thing like if I don't do that how am I going to do the next thing and and you know it's just not an option so you just have to figure out another path but like what's going to show up on my doorstep or what am I going to chase after next because something's going to break but so super weird as well to like to be in a place where I'm like something else will come and I'm going to enjoy the freedom not knowing for a while until it does and then so basically now I'm leaving on Monday um, for six weeks doing an apartment swap with a friend in Paris and traveling and doing some stories in in Europe but you know if if my projects hadn't all fallen through I wouldn't have been able to say that yes to that you know, you never know. You never know, and just I guess have to again just trust, trust yourself, trust your ability, and trust the fact that you will be scrappy and move on to the next thing. Oh yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do you What do you do on the daily that you? you really rely on to kind of connect yourself with your creativity, what helps drive your ability to really um, do your line of work? I mean, eating, obviously. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel that I'm necessarily (laughs) as creative we would all like to be every day, but... um, um, Definitely the pleasure part of it, you know, uh, taking time to um, make myself, you know, a yummy lunch at home. I work from home as much as I can. Um, yeah. And uh, and the other thing that I've really discovered in the last um, 
you know, six months, it's, it's, I sound like such an old lady, is gardening. I taught myself to garden.